there is something absolutely mysteriously special about when you can do something and you don't know that you're doing it. And it's effortless. It is absolutely like, I got to do this. I have to do it. And it's, you don't monitor your time. You know, oh God, you know, whatever. It's, there's no whining. It is just a thing. It's not even a thing that you have to like get up and have good, you know, routine. And I've done the worst things and been good at them too. But when you can do it and it's like effortless, it's amazing. So I'm on, I'm in hot pursuit of that. So that was Jack Roche. He's the owner and founder of Old North, a fashion retail store in downtown Asheville. And this is the Making It in Asheville podcast, a podcast where the two of us sit down with a Asheville business owner like Jack uh, and discuss what they're making and how they are making it in Asheville. We're your hosts, Sarah and Tony. That was a better Sarah and Tony than last time. I liked it. Cool. So uh, episode 21, interview two, season two, is with Jack Roche. And I, oh man, it's so loved the conversation. It was a longer conversation because Jack is like a renaissance, like true version of a renaissance man. And we had a lot to talk about. Yeah, he actually calls himself uh, Jack of all trades, or I guess he says other people call him the Jack of all trades because he's just so involved in so many other different projects and and areas of his life. Uh, so it was really interesting to hear how he balances all of that and manages all of that, uh, or you know, or attempts, doesn't balance that. <laughs> yeah. yeah, we got really really deep um, pretty fast, and I think that's because uh, Jack himself is just such a reflective person. Yeah. And so uh, a little bit on Old North, it is uh, got this incredible corner location right in downtown Asheville on Lexington. And, um, you know, I have a little bit, you'll hear me try and uh, seem like I know what the hell I'm talking about, but uh, I have a little bit of a background in menswear and retail. And so the shop itself, when we first showed up, we did, uh, and we've talked about it in some of the uh, past episodes, but we did this um, First Friday passport thing in downtown Asheville, and we walked into Old North, and I, like, heart eyes is a way that we would describe the, the feeling when I walked in. It is a beautiful retail store. It sells incredible wares, and that night, Jack and Kylie were in the shop, and we had an opportunity to talk with them, and instantly, there was rapport and that's part of I think just working in retail you kind of get the ability to do that on on their side but we've been wanting to have a full-blown microphone involved conversation with Jack ever since we finally got to do it and you know I am one to say that all of these episodes are amazing but this one particularly I find powerful because it you know by the end of the conversation we get to a point where we bleed um passion and work that, you know, uh, provides uh, income, right? So how fortunate can you be to work on a passion project and have it pay your bills? And Jack has figured out how to turn Old North into a really well-oiled business machine, and the story is fantastic, fantastic. And then he goes, you know, sailing across the world and uh, doing crazy crazy stuff that you'll hear a little bit about in this episode as well. Yep. So without further ado, here is episode 21 with Jack Roche. Enjoy.
this is uh, a special place. I think this was one of the first places that we walked into when coming to Asheville and was like, dang, this is a super pro retail store. And I would love for you to just kind of describe what is Old North today. Because uh, I know there's a really amazing backstory, at least to me. Have a little bit of a background in men's fashion and retail. Sure. So, just where are we today? And uh, we'll start there. Yeah. Um, introductions. My name is uh, Jack Roche, and um, I'm the owner, purveyor, whatever you want to call it, of Old North here in Nashville, North Carolina. And what we do is men's and women's clothing. Um, I would call it contemporary, but it's a lot of classical echoes of the same thing if you're smart in any of these businesses. But we tell a very classic 60s-based um, story that's, that pivots from that hyper-classic era of great men's wear and great women's wear. And then we pivot on some aspects of um, you know contemporary things, from a little bit of street to a little bit of um, eccentric global things from Japan or around the world and tell little cultural stories. So, um, but yeah, we have a 3000 square foot boutique that takes up the larger portions of a uh, entire block here in Nashville. Mm -hmm. And we've been here in business in Nashville for seven years, wow. but in this location for five. Awesome. That, that brings me to my next question, which is sure. uh, my next question. My first question, which is uh, like, we went back and we did some research on, Old North and, and kind of the story. And we looked at some pictures and we were like, that doesn't look like the Old North that we no, see we today. Yeah. So, like, tell us a little bit about, you know, kind of that first version of, sure. of Old North and how that looked. When I moved here from L.A., um, you know, and you move to a smaller marketplace, a, a tier three marketplace like this, mm -hmm. where it's it's tourist driven, it's, it's a regional marketplace, it's in the south. You know, put your hat on because this is not like throwing things against the wall in L.A. or New York where your number one prerogative is to be maybe the coolest person in the room so that you can hold prestige and confidence and then dictate commerce by that. Mm -hmm. um, it's a much different one. It's a it's an emotional thing for the local people. It's, a, it's something that shows trust and consistency and echoes of ethoses that are southern or that they could align with because mm. you come down here swinging like couture they'll eat you alive and that's like been proven time and time again so when we moved here um i worked for noah at the time to just pad the experience because you can't be an entrepreneur and not have a backup so mm. and who is noah Noah's the National Oceanic Atmospheric Administration. Ah, gotcha. The Department of Commerce's <laughs> arm for the weather, and the world's yeah. weather data comes to Asheville before it comes anywhere else in the world. Oh. And this is where they ingest about eight petabytes of raw data, and I was a head of, a director of that operation. So, Pet um, Petabytes is, that's the first time I've ever heard that word. I'm going to go ahead and guess it's more than a terabyte. Yeah, it's a thousand of those. thousand terabytes. Yeah. Jeez Louise. So it's it's Holy it's moment. a heavy amount of ingest of just raw data. So and um, it's probably increased. It sure. Yeah, and they do a lot of processing in the petaflops, sort of terminology. Oh, which for is sure. Yeah, petaflops faster, more crunching. But um, it's pretty cool if you're into the sciences. We could I could totally dork out with you. There's mm -hmm. some great research going down here, but um, it's also the government it sucks. Yeah. Blah blah. But 
um, did that for two years and then um, in parallel um, started Old North and knew that I wanted to start Old North when I was still in LA, but it was, it was through watching a friend at the time um, named Blair, who was the head of a store called General Quarters. Mm. And oh, watched wow. General Quarters start, so he used to tattoo across the street. And I was one of his first customers. And I was in the business to a degree and had worked in, you know, other corporate things of fashion in San Francisco. But I was really, you know, I, I lived across the street from, like, Mr. Freedom store, wow. you know, in off of La Brea yeah. area. And, you know, I walked past, like, Union every day and, like, American Rag and all these things. And it was 2009-ish when you really saw a shift in the new, the second, the third wave of denim. So there was like, it was kind of, it was cool. There was something breaking out of the 2000s at the time. Mm-hmm. And as it was a big like workwear. Yeah, it was like the workwear revival, but revival. it was like, you know, LA'd up, right? Mm-hmm. So everybody's like Clean. driving a vintage BMW and wearing a chambray shirt that's, you know, kind of busted up, right? So, um, you can see it. It's, uh, so when we came here in 2012, it was like past the first wave of it all. But you could start seeing all the people from L.A. like moving to Austin, moving to Denver, moving to pick a freaking market, mm-hmm. right? So that's when we were like, ooh, this is like the land race of um, the land race. Um, so it's we don't want to be in L.A. I mean, we do. I love L.A., but my wife at the time um, wanted to move to the south where she was from, here. And we came back for a wedding and we ended up saying, you know, this is actually a pretty cool place. This could be another little Austin. Mm-hmm. So um, we did some basic research for about six months, and was we're, there was no men's store in the whole market, and there's really nothing at that level of doing, you know, let's call it the the Union Made, which sadly is out of business now. Right. But um, Union Made was a big sort of flag carrier of that movement um, out of San Francisco, and... So it was A.B. Fitz. Hey, Howard. Um, and all these legends. But, um, yeah, uh, so it just made sense. So, But let's just make sure that we get the motifs right because I'm in business to be in business, right? So mm-hmm. I'm not over here, like, self-masturbating onto what I want to sell. It has to be in a marketplace that sells. So denim and boots, flannels and heritage, uh, made in America, my granddaddy. I rem- you know, that echo of that same type of thing was a really popular motif for the beginning of this menswear movement. And we, of course, I believe in that stuff. I'm an American dude. Who doesn't like the American heritage? And I grew up in the Northwest and yeah. swinging axes and all this kind of stupid shit. Um, I don't know if I can curse, but... You're good. <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah, so it, and it fit the motif of the area. And it's something that I was really passionate about. I did a lot of sort of late 1800s and early 1900s um, research. And I, I, I tend to look at clothing anthropologically. So I was kind of like one of these vintage dorks for a long time and loved all my biggie stories and just chased the rabbit hole of like vintage clothing. So it kind of was like a really easy way for us to start a business, for me anyways. Um, and coming from an, a creative background, an artistic direction background, um, a graphic design background, I was able to sort of like build a brand, tell a story, tie into the local market, tell a little bit of heritage, mm-hmm. come in as a humble sort of, which I was at the time and didn't have any money, but, um, and present ourselves as something that wanted to 
echo the 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 morals and ethos of like the time gone by, which had to do with heritage and you know uh, things that are made well and and all that. So yeah. as time has gone on, it's shifted, yeah. and that's what fashion is. Now, granted, I'm not in fast fashion. I'm in like classic to heritage with a little arm of fashion because you have to be to not be bored. Mm-hmm. But um, as we've m- moved, there was a couple catalysts that made us change, to be honest. There was one journalist that was like lumber sexual. I remember oh, when I heard God. that freaking term and I was like, we got to we got to start selling sneakers like, <laughs> tomorrow. I'm like, this is stupid because you 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 want to protect people, you know, making fun of your thing. Right. Yeah. So it's it's one of those aspects of um, of pivoting early. I believe in pivoting early mm-hmm. and being confident instead of pivoting later and uh, having excuses. Totally. So, we wanted to always get to this, which was contemporary LA, which was a little bit more of a global story. Um, there's a little bit of heritage still here. I mean, a lot of it, but it's morphed into something that's a little bit more um, um, appropriate, I believe. A lot of people still want me to sell, you know, um, uh, outfitter inspired Filson type of story stuff. Mm-hmm. And it's, um, I do sell some of it, but me and Kylie are on a trajectory. Yeah. And we believe that we're contemporary for the global marketplace. But, you know, it's, you have to be, you have to be a lost leader at some point. And you also have to like make a confident step, even though it's great to sell the same things you've been selling over and over and over. It's my job, my duty to sort of bring people along. Right. So we do, we're always trying to shift and change and, and echo the same aspects of what we believed in in the past, but we have to keep up with the times. And I believe that it's better to be like that than, than always, uh, trust that change won't happen. I, I'm a, I'm, I get in front of change. I don't wait for it to happen to me. I love that. So. And, and so I have a question about, uh, if we were to go back seven years, right, you have a job that's going to, you know, keep some of the safety, right. Mm-hmm. In terms of, at least I know I'll make some money. Sure. But I imagine in terms of all of the types of businesses one could start, a retail store has a upfront capital costs that perhaps totally. you might not recoup. How did you think about, A, you were in a different space, and my understanding is it was smaller. So maybe like how did you think about the location? How did you think about like, man, I'm going to – buy thousands of dollars potentially of clothes. Sure. I'm not consigning them, right? I'm, I'm buying them and then I have to resell them. What what were you thinking seven years ago, if you can remember, um, and what kind of steps were involved? Um, You know, it was a calculated risk. So it was like, I've done a few of these exercises in my life where you have, you know, the entrepreneurial idea, um, the business plan. You know, my wife at the time was a mathematician, I was, you know, I had 15 years in Silicon Valley being part of startups and knowing what risk was. So risk on the table is something that I'm not like adverse to adverse to. Yeah. But I'm also extremely pragmatic and come from a military family. So it's like, you know, I, I allow myself to be creative and wispy and, and sprightly, um, and great think tank person that has no boundaries. But at the end of the day, when we got to chop it all and refine it into a, a thing. If it's a dream killer, it's a dream killer. Mm-hmm. I'll walk away and not have to kick and scream. So logic prevails at all costs at the very end for me. Super pragmatist at that level, but also like a young little creative boy that's bouncing around the room. So, um, and it's produced 
great results. It's just allowing the process to happen. So the process here was, to be honest, um, there were no vacancies downtown. And I had a business plan, everything ready to go, examples, use case, done all my math, did everything. Um, tax, LLC, articles organization, everything was started. And there were sort of, everything had a contingency. So if I start this LLC, what if we don't start the business? Well, it's like, well, I'll, I'll run the LLC into the ground and, and take a tax haven. So I'm always thinking about every other way that I can, can have contingencies of mm -hmm. everything decision that I do. So $700 to start this. Well, I could run it into the ground and, and re recoup $5,000 in tax benefits if I strung it out. So there's, there's always pivots. So along the way, um, we're doing all the hard work and I'm working and, and essentially um, making sure that, you know, the, the fiscal responsible stuff is there, you know, and I'm buying houses and selling houses and doing everything else. So there's a healthy pool of like, okay, does this exhaust 10% of my everything? And that's the yeah. calculated risk. So we we amateurize the risk scenario and then essentially say, okay, are you willing to bet? And then we waited for location. So my father is a, a sort of a legend in retail and my mother's in retail as well. And, um, my stepmother and I come from a bunch of retail people, oh, wow. um, that have started stores and invented the POS system and all sorts of things. <laughs> um, so there's always this awareness of risk. Um, but, um, it was something I really wanted to do to break my cherry. I did not want to do this full time. I don't want it. This is not a life goal. This is a very, I have to say this as a preface because it's it's important. People are like, oh, this is so amazing. It's like, yeah, wait, wait, wait until uh, I do like five or six of these things. So the thing is, is that this is – I want it to be a, an entrepreneurial sort of break my cherry sort of exercise. I've been in an enterprise, but I want a calculated risk, a three-year to five-year business plan that was built around something that I could observe the first stages of building up capital from nothing, to be honest. Um, a new enterprise, but – and I just still don't do a middle, but – the beginning parts, I'm seven years into that, and it's we can talk about it later. Um, there was a woman here that knew my wife at the time that had opened up a clothing store called Virtue. And Asia, we ran into her at a bar when we first moved here and caught up and said, hey, you know, this is what we're thinking about doing. And we're waiting for the right place, and it's got to be on Lexington. Yeah. So if you do all your research and you look around here and you're in clothing, this is the clothing street, right? Um, and this is the block. Um, and you can do all the research that you want, but it's really just the ability to go, yeah, that's it. You know, it's the ability to see where hotness begins or whatever. So I self-bestowed coming from all these big places like San Francisco and Portland and L.A. Um, I was able to say, make a, make a calculated choice. So I said, Asia, is there anything that you know about coming up from landlords? Six months later, she was like, hey, um, you have an opportunity. And it was where East Fork is now. Oh, wow. A2 North Lexington. And um, it was fairly easy at that point. You know, like when you see what we put together for prospectuses and that kind of stuff, it's it's absolutely overwhelming. And people, most people go, we'll give you the money to start, you know. Um, so most people in the sun don't even prepare business plans. So it was... It was a <clears throat> very intense document, and the landlords were like, we'd love to have you. And um, the timing was off. So at first, we were going to do like a fall opening in 2012 because we basically bonded the business and 
right around now, seven years ago, and early fall of 2012, and um, they were going to renovate the space. So um, it pushed back. Uh, there was windows of buying, you know, like commodity of clothing is a, is a booking scenario. So you have to like book nine months in advance. So I was going to fall markets to book for, to last minute book for spring. And then it, it was all like backwards. So I was like, nah, I don't think this is for me. And I backed out and I was just going to like not do the shop. And then the landlord's, and a couple other businesses here in town sat me down and begged me to do it. Wow. And I'm not going to say that they begged me, but yeah. they definitely were like, we'll accommodate in any way possible. So I got a bunch of free rent. I got a bunch of other things. Um, and it was sort of massaged to my favor to take the risk. So we opened up in a time that I wouldn't advise normal people to open up, especially in this town, which is like f February. You know? <laughs> like that's a horrible time to open. Um, and at this time, this place wasn't as gentrified as it is now. So it's, it was kind of like, it was like sleepy, you know? So, um, but we took the risk. Um, and then it was like, <laughs> it was a $15,000 initial capital. That's it. Wow. I would imagine more. Most people do. Um, but it was, a it wasn't a with, it wasn't without backup. So there was always like, I had a job and I was donating the money and, mm -hmm. you know, making really good money. Um, so it was padding the future buys to create that sort of like spectrum or elasticity of, of whatever. So it was a, as we sell, we donate more. We had a threshold. If we don't sell anything, we don't donate more. We create an exit strategy from that. Right. So it was a retention based sort of growth thing, um, which we thought was uh, a healthy calculation of, you know, grow as you can go, uh, you know, as much as you can go. Mm -hmm. So, uh, not the best business plan. Um, 80% of all businesses go out of business because undercapitalization. So, um, but we felt like we could sort of Apple stand model this and do word of mouth and have to this day spent no money on advertising or marketing period. Wow. Um, and um, really just wanted to see what would happen. So yeah. did you build out that location at all or was it kind of lean? Yeah. Spent about five grand to build it out. Cool. So, that's minus the 15. So the landlords gave me a lot of sort of credit towards yeah. that. And when you mentioned a prospectus, does that I don't think it hasn't sounded like you raised money. But when you say you came forward with a prospectus, was that for the landlord or for, for landlord. raising capital? Yeah, a feasibility study. Cool. Yeah. So that we could at least prepare. Um, we were in it to learn the repetitious, you know, like success. What's success? Success isn't making a bunch of money. Because if you can't replicate it, it's worthless. So, like, I'm not in it to make a bunch of money. I made a bunch of money. The thing is, is that, and, and money's good. I'm not going to knock it and sound like some weirdo. But the thing is, is that if you go into entrepreneurial stuff, in my opinion, this is peanuts, right? This is, like, until you get to something else. Mm -hmm. And I came from, like, tech startups and, like, billion-dollar companies. And, like, it's not that I'm trying to start a billion-dollar company. It's just that there's a lot of ways to learn those things without, like, failing hard. And the biggest thing that I've learned in my life is how precious ambition is and how the psychology of how we go through life. I'm not into helicopter mom stuff, but like it is extremely important to have positive reinforcement as you go through entrepreneurship. And, and the guarantee though, is that you'll fail. So as you fail, make sure you learn really good steps. Mm -hmm. You got three, three screw ups, right? 
um, if you don't learn from that, you're going to repeat them and you're going to be out of business and there was no purpose. So it was this, that's how we saw it. Um, so it was, let's, let's really learn. So it was a, it was a very learning sort of based thing. And then it was with a, a proven marketplace and a, a five-year-old denim story that was like, I just copy five years ago. Mm-hmm. So just look back into the past and like replicate it. So it was like, it was more or less like, okay, that's, that's how we're going to do this. And then it was just kind of being another satellite of the same story in a new marketplace. Yeah. So that, there's no real magic to it. It was just, it was careful analysis of timing, marketplace, and, and risk. Yeah, I love that. Um, you, you were saying earlier, positive reinforcement is so important. Yeah. How did that play into all of this for you? Oh, everybody hated what we were going to do. Yeah. Everybody said we're going to fail. You can't sell $300 jeans. Um, I sold like 10,000 of them. <laughs> um, like, but regardless, it was, it was like the amount of like hate that we got, that I got. Like from locals, from, from locals here. Yeah. 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 Mostly locals. Um, people in LA, New York, globally, Tokyo, all these marketplaces that have these really great communities of people that are just trying to tell a greater story of yeah. what we believe in and the cool things about clothing and not just commerce. Um, yeah, locals are like, well, you know. U-shape we, Wranglers, baby. Yeah, outside of whatever the stones they throw, yeah. I think that the initial psychology is that they're 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 offended by you coming into their marketplace and doing something that they couldn't do themselves. And I, that's my sort of like, how dare you, mm-hmm. you know, do something that I always wanted to do. You know, it's that type of thing. So, but we all know it you come from bigger cities, you're just going to, you have to hustle at a much more level. Like you come here, apathy's on tap. I'm not talking shit about Asheville, but this mountain time, island time, it's happened to me now. I can't Mm -hmm. even, I can't even make appointments anymore. You should be the most (laughs) due diligent person. I got like 40,000 freaking emails, unread emails, like ghosting my own phone. You know, it's like, (laughs) and what it does is it produces this laissez-faire sort of like thing where it's like, I don't really need it to do as much because, eh. and yeah. and that just kind of like echoes into the apathy effect of like not having to be all New York about it. Yeah. So we had a lot of people that were coming from that perspective, in my humble opinion, and they were, um, and they still are, like you know, offended. How dare you? How dare you sell something, a, a shirt for over a hundred dollars? Who do you think you are? Seriously. Like verbatim, and it's just wild. It's absolutely wild. So, along the way, there was a bunch of haters. There still is, you know. You gotta love those people. But, um, and that's a whole. That's a process. It's yeah. easier said than done. Yeah. Um, but I don't know if that answers so, your question. Yeah, yeah, yeah who, no. Who's been positive for you in the in the process? Well, that's where you have to manifest your own positive stuff. Got right? it. So you have to like believe, and that's like the key. I think that's the big lesson here is that it's it's the repetition to which you're able to conjure up your own sort of self-worth, right? I mean, this is what we do as humans. This is like the basics. Unfortunately, some of us get the privilege and some of us don't. And the privilege to analyze and build this type of confidence is, um, um, it's a luxury, but it it is a fundamental, I believe in the liberation of like how you do things, you know, there's no magic. It's just, it's just, it, it's your self-narrative. You really got to work on it. And yeah. it's, um, it's a humbling thing. 
do you have a particular practice, so to speak, to kind of make sure that you are staying positive and, and to keep that going? No, and or I'm, is I'm it like, just like a way of life. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, I'm not like, I mean, uh, yeah, I'm definitely some existential jerk, but um, in regards to like practice or whatever, it's like, no, I mean, there's a bunch of things that I read and it would just open up a, a huge book of like, self-philosophy that most people probably go through. Yeah. But in, you know, certain things, it's it's just, it. when I was a little skate kid in the early 90s, I was trying to like ollie really big, right? Mm-hmm. And like get the board up. And I remember this guy was like, dude, you're not even jumping. Just jump higher. And then another guy was just like, you know how to be a better skater? Hang around better skaters. So it was like, the analogy is supposed to reference is that I think putting your focus to the people that you look up to and keeping like, you know, that carrot effect going forward is like, you know, just always, always just hang around better people or people that echo what you want to do. So I've always looked up to people that, that do bigger and grander things than I do. And it's just always kept perspective pretty tight, but you know, there's a whole bunch of, jargon that I could throw at you philosophy wise that of my own character and my own um, sort of life path, but it's hard. I mean, Jesus, it is hard. It is extremely hard to stay positive. Um, and I think that's actually part of it mm-hmm. is to go, you know, I had two nervous breakdowns in this business. I'm not lying and I'm not exaggerating either, but you know, one was hospitalized to the point to where, you know, when I quit Noah and, and, you know, this Trump thing happened and I mean, the marketplace went into the toilet um, and got a little too leveraged on one side. I'm not working risk money, staff quits, all sorts of stuff. Um, I used to hold this thing like very nervously, like, you know, baby like, um, and it drove me kind of crazy for a long time. This, um, but you get all the kicking, all the bad reviews. Every you know, you work eighty hours a week. It, it, this is not good. You know, like there's no. It's not like a. It's hard. Yeah. It sucks actually, but um, I'm thankful for it in a really weird existential way that um, it's made me resilient. It's taught me things about life that I think make me less naive, less deserving. You know, want to get humble? Start a fucking retail store. You know. Because the re- reality is, is that it's a keystone. Everything is minuscule. You make less money than you think. And it's just you're you're keeping a creative baby afloat. And then it becomes a child. And then you got to, you know, nurture it. And you got to do it. And it's like kind of like that. So for me, it's been a deeply emotional, spiritual, existential thing. Way more than the accolades of having a successful business or whatever. Mm-hmm. So it's changed me as a person. Wow. For sure. And thank you. Um, I love what you said about hanging around people who are better skaters. Sure. And one of the other things that I had heard you kind of allude to was the idea of like, if you want to do X, that's capital X, maybe start with lowercase X. Yeah. Um, And I'm wondering is part of the kind of audacity of starting retail and growing a business and, and staying positive through it. Is that, um, a result of, of handling smaller problems in the past? 
and just kind of like growing the muscle that says that you yeah. can do this thing. Sure. Yeah, I mean, but it's it's I think it's the volume and the repetition of it that actually like takes its toll or teaches you or however you want to see pain, right? It's like same thing with pleasure and pain, same receptor, right? Um, same thing with retail. Um, it's not different. It's just little, pro- you know, I was a project manager and did, you know, every damn project you can possibly do in IT or to advertising to anything in the professional world. And <clears throat> I think that what, um, what I was always really good at was the micromanagement of, of small problems and, and always doing, you know, multitask. Jeez. I'm, I'm like, you know, a crazy person when it comes to that. And I'm neurotic, to be honest. So there's there's a lot of me that, that came out of a very, um, you know, I'm a Ferrari doing donuts in a bathroom type of person. Um, and I could do a lot. So I knew that that's what this was. But it's, oh, it's unforgiving. It, it needs blood every day. It needs yeah. more blood. So it's un, unrelenting, if you may. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But... I think it's really interesting that you are involved in so many things. You know, before we started recording, we were talking about all of your travels and your, you know, dreams to go get a PhD and all this other stuff that's going on that's beyond Old North. Right. I look at that and I'm like, oh my God, how does this person like manage all of these Barely. these areas because it, it's not it's not just like hey I, I own a retail store and i have five million things to do within this re- this retail store it's i am in so many different spaces right i mean do you ever kind of think to yourself maybe i should just do one thing or, or are you like that just kind of how you are like personality yeah, that it, gives yeah you life? absolutely i mean yeah. most people that know me will start laughing right now yeah um it's a little bit of both um I'm pretty dangerous about not being able to manage my my scope of things. Mm. So I'll take on way too much classically. And then I'll be like having nerves breakdown or crazy. So it's like self-induced. But there's this thirst that I have that's insatiable mm. about learning and changing and doing things and always evolving. So and that really has been in – that's been in my life's if, – if you got, you know, 24 hours to do like my life podcast, um, it will be a very weird story. <laughs> very exciting though. Um, all the way from the very beginning. And it's the same echo, the same stuff. So as I've gotten older, I've been able to refine it to a rule. It's no more than three things. Mm-hmm. So, but sometimes I like have like five things, you know, yeah. but three big things. Yeah. Small whatever. Things. But let's, let's dispel like the romance yeah. of what the story is or whatever. If you're good at anything and do anything more than 700 times, it will be easier than the first, right? Mm-hmm. So, like, just like this store, it gets crazy. It gets hectic. You don't know how to forecast. You don't know how to manage the money. You don't know how to do accounts payable. You don't know how to buy right. You don't know what your marketplace is. You don't know the swells, the ebb and flows, all sorts of stuff. You don't know how to, you know, like, all the stuff, all the little secrets. But, you know, three years in, you go, oh, I got this. Five years in, you're like, this is boring. Seven <laughs> years, you're like, I work one day a week, and uh, we. it's pretty much on autopilot. Time for something new. Yeah. Yeah. Got so it. Um, it's the only business that I famously have always said with Kylie that um, I've never loved a business more than this business. Clothing is one of the most amazing businesses there possibly is outside of the retail. It's like... Hello and sales and merchandising. Merchandising is cool. But um, it's the clothing. It's unbelievable. It's 
uh, it's the interaction with the people that, that that makes me still interested in it. So when you see when you see gent, so clothing is one of the weirdest catalysts that you have to participate in, no matter what, or you get arrested. Because you walk outside naked, you get arrested, right? So you have to wear clothes. So you can actively or, or passively participate. Um, in the active participation, um, you can have so many different avenues. The, when you get deeper into fashion, you see people in your life that have an effortless sense of style. And it's something that you notice early on in your life, maybe, or you don't, or never. But there are people that hold gait and a sense of style effortlessly actualized in a way that's so elegant. You see somebody that has real style, yeah. but they do it with like poise. Spread your Torah. Grace. Yeah, that stuff is an, a fully actualized person in the essence of how they wear their clothing. Um, that is one of the hardest things to find in life, um, as I found. And I come from like classic menswear and the appreciation of like a lot of classic heroes um, in menswear. Um, and it it is something that I've all the elegance of a true gentleman is is one of these things that will always be on a, a top shelf for me. So um, I don't know why I'm going on this tangent, but um, why am I going on this tangent? Oh, I love it. Yeah. No. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah. I mean, we're sort of pivoting less from the business side and more from the the passion for yeah, yeah. Clothing. So I think it's great. Yeah, I can kind of curb that, but. It's, it is a true, it's kept me interested. Um, so fashion, even though the retail is boring and people suck and it's horrible and you, know, you work yeah. long hours and people treat you like shit. Um, when you see confidence in the eye of somebody that's like, wow, this is exactly like, it sounds so, it's weird. It's, this is what everybody thinks. Like clothing's so shallow, but it's not. It's like, it echoes so deep into your life that when you feel good, like wearing clothing, it like echoes into your whole life in any more ways than other vanity's part of it like if you have you know black teeth and then you get really nice teeth you're going to smile more and that smile is going to produce chemicals and right right all this kind of thing there is another component to that to where people feel cute and like but it's societally reinforced so it's like uh, do we need that and it's 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 a grand argument but i uh i truly am I love this. I love fashion. I yeah. love clothing. And I just started. And I don't know anything. And how exciting. The most exciting things in the world is the things you can you never master. And that's the, what I look for in life yeah. and for fulfillment is it's not to master something. It's to find something on the, I can never master. Yeah. And that, I think it's, it seems like this industry is actually perfect for you because you're always kind of looking for to learn something yeah. new, like you said, and fashion is always changing and always will. Always. You can't ever, you know, change that. So yeah, that's fascinating. And every six months, you know, and it's sort of like this powwow and it's kind of about prediction and forecast and it's observing the minutia of like hmm. the in-between, right? So like it's, it's fascinating when you can work with somebody like I work with Kylie and Kylie is one of the most... I've never worked with anybody in any spectrum of any field where you can be on the same wavelength with somebody so identically that real trust. So I've never experienced real trust. And now trust, I think, is like a misunderstood term. The etymology is that I trust you, sort of in this volunteer way, in hope that you trust me. 
And this is not trust, in my opinion. Trust is this dual confidence of, I know, beyond a shadow of a doubt, whether she trusts me or not, what she's going to do, and I trust that. Mm -hmm. So I trust that Kylie will have the same perspective, because I know it. And this is like a deeper understanding of like her and her sort of how she picks. And I'm talking about buying in general. But um, that is a gift when you can find somebody at the level where the behavior echoes your own. And that's where you build like not this emotional trust, but trust based upon sort of this colleague based thing, which is uh, what a treat. Mm -hmm. I would never I would never switch that for anything. So, so I, I mean, I don't know what we had on our list, but one of the things that you said um, a little while ago now was the idea that you, know, you get about three big mistakes yeah. before it's it, you're going to shut it down. It, can you identify a couple learning, big learnings in the seven years that you've been running this bad boy? Yeah. I mean, you know, it's all about, it's about buying, you know, like let's just put, put, put it into frame. I'm. I'm buying clothing, a commodity. I have to buy it. Hope that you buy it. And I have to buy something that is safe enough to fit within the arc of, uh, it's, to download all this, it would be really intense, but, um, you know, build upon personas, you build upon gender, you build upon time, you build upon demographic, you have all these things. You have 128 silhouettes based upon this mathematical spectrum to which you sort of like, also put into a gut thing. Um, buying is one of the most complex yet easy things for some people and really hard for other people. Um, most of most of the big mistakes have to do with buying and the allocation of money. I mean, in my opinion, um, two characteristics in fashion that I've observed coming from out of a fashion background, an IT background of accountability that's like breakneck, um, is that um, people in fashion don't communicate and people in fashion don't know what fiscal responsibility is. They just don't. I mean, grossly, it's all about being creative. So creatives are famously bad communicators and also really bad with money. And I think that echoes into this marketplace tremendously. So a lot of people that get into fashion have a great sense of style, right? Back to that thing. And somebody told them that they did or that they know that they do or they see things that other people don't. And that's a huge component of creative direction. So they come out here cocky, throw down, they get the basics out. And then it's a uh, 80% of people in fashion and boutiques go out of business in the first two years. Mm -hmm. So like that is a, that is a, a standard that's been around for a long time and it's extremely hard. So most of the mistakes that I've seen have to do with that undercapitalization, bad fiscal buying, buying for yourself, not for your demographic. That's a, that, that's the first rule. You buy for yourself, you're dead. Mm. You got two seasons, you're done. And it's it's over. So I don't care how cool you are. Your clientele isn't cool as you. And it goes back to the 80-20 rule, the, the Nick and the Larry rule. Um, you know, you buy for the Larrys, you don't buy for Nick. But you make sure that Nick advertises your clothing. Yeah. You know? So it's it's this thing of um, really being, it's more psychological. And it's for your marketplace. Yeah, you know, you can go to New York and be the coolest guy in the room or whatever. But you too will will die and you won't know why, but um to really survive is a whole nother conversation. Mm. So, I love it. I think it's a 
That sounds right. Yeah. We've never done it, but that sounds absolutely right. Yeah. Yeah. So you, you just mentioned, you know, you're buying for Nick and Nick is advertising for you. Let's talk a little bit about marketing and then what sure. kind of tactics have you used in the past? What's worked? What hasn't worked? What are you working on now to, to market Old North? Well, there's a lot of embarrassing truth to what I'm about to say, which is um, there's, there's a, in my opinion, there's a couple different ways to come out swinging with no money. And it's blatant confidence with the inclusion of, I don't need your money. So this cocky art kid kind of thing, right? Where you're like, I don't need, I don't need you, you know, I don't need to advertise. So too cool for school. Um, and then when you pad it with having another job, so you're not actually relying on the commerce. So you're not out there going sale every, Hey everybody come down on Saturday. You know, like mm -hmm. you're holding this line of like pretentiousness. Mm -hmm. That's what it is. Um, you are able to control perception. Mm -hmm. And I think that, um, that's been a huge, a huge ingredient of, I don't know, the whole sway of everything. Um, remind me of the question again, marketing tactics or strategy for it. old North or the lack it. thereof. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's been, um, we've played around with a couple things, you know, but like, no, I don't have a marketing background. I, I came from like. Yeah operations so it was and came from a lot of creative a lot of creative stuff but it wasn't never on the the marketing aspect mm -hmm. truth is that um go talk to any marketing person like fifty thousand dollars or some crazy shit right or something that's like i it's just a bunch of snake oil to be honest and i remember working in huge ad programs and it's just the money thrown around is unbelievable and it's like, my ROI, are you out of your mind? Yeah. It's like, I need a million dollars to just break even, you yeah. know? So there was no way to measure. There was no way for me to understand a lot right. of it in the early stages. There was no way to see what would be. I wanted to, I wanted a Keystone experience with my marketing. Mm -hmm. I wanted to be like, I put a dollar in, I want $2 back. Or at least a dollar back. At least a dollar back. Yeah. That sounds, sounds something. reasonable. And then I'm like building commodity on something that's like, you know, on some third aspect of whatever, right? Um, could never find that. Yeah, it's hard. So instead chose the cool kid route, which was, I don't need you. I don't need you at all. Yeah. And then you build off a of word of mouth and then word of mouth creates this. And then I basically do as the coolest things you can't do anywhere else and just wait for people to come. And they, they came. Yeah. And then they perpetuated that same thing. And it satiates a, a type of cool kid that wants to, you know, in this place, if you really like cool things or unique things or things that are singular in your, like, you know, I like, I like to be unique in some way, right? Um, you are so over-marketed and the things that you think are cool, so many other people think is cool. And if you want to be unique, you really have to go out of your way. But cool is totally dead. Like, cool is way dead now. And it, it has to do with... Um, this thing of like, I provide a slightly unique, unadvertised, unmarketed, you got to come in the shop, you got to hear me talk, all mm -hmm. this crap, and tell you about this product that was made just for me for this store. Mm -hmm. And then you get this sort of like, wow, there's only six pieces made type of thing. So I basically built the business on that. Yeah. yeah. And, ooh. Uh, go ahead, Sarah. 
no, I, I, I think it's interesting. You know, you've, you've built a premium brand. You, you don't really do sales or advertising no. or anything like that. But there is this this authentic voice and this authentic look and feel that comes across through certain marketing, you know, communications. Yeah, like Instagram is like right. the only way we do things. Yeah, yeah. So I, I, you know, I'm wondering about that. How do you get inspiration for that? Is it, is it? You know, I've seen that you post a lot of like old movie, um, pictures yeah, like well, that are yeah. pictures of your clothes. Yeah. It's like, well, like anybody in cool. Instagram space right now. Yeah. Um, it's it's such a, a you know like a, a a role to curate a mood board, if you may. Right. Yeah. Of, you know, picture, color, form, motif. You know, we're all a bunch of creative dorks. It's mm -hmm. like, I went to art school. I could build you a mood board and tell you about the psychology of why orange and blue just make you want to hit like. I, I, it, psychology, color theorem, all sorts of stuff. So if you're if you're really looking at the mood, all we're doing, everybody, I'm, I'm not unique, but I can tell you what I chase, and it's the same melancholic, classic 50s early 60s sort of like trapped in the end of summer sort of mood mm. and it echoes with this you know sad romance into a um a quiet dinner and a a, a, a well-set table with a nice cocktail right so like the poetry to which me in creative direction role has always been is is very much into this like effortless romance of how I see fashion, how I see creative direction, how I see the lifestyle of this place, this beach in Yemen that no one knows about because it's whatever, um, to all the other things that are really the essence of me. So that's when me starts coming out. I was like, yeah. this, uh, this, this is so moody. Like, mm -hmm. what's going on here? I was like, well, that's kind of like me. You know, like, I, you hung out with me and it'd be like, that's, that's who you're hanging out with, right? So, like, um, and I'm very much that person, you know, like a deep romantic in the sense of this ex existential melancholic person. That's, um, yeah, that's, that's, that's me. Yeah. So it, it shines through. So in, it really does though. Yeah. When I direct models, you know, it goes back to like, I don't want happy people. I don't listen to happy music. I don't like the major chords. I like the minor chords. I, I like when I like when there's a struggle. I like when there is vulnerability. You know, I like when someone can look through the camera. Um, I've always liked that brat. I've always liked that struggle. That that um, the essence of you get it. Some people get it. Some people don't. Mm. But you look at really good fashion magazines, and you'll always see it. And you'll always see really, really good direction in that sort of like sultry sort of like it's a deeper darker romance so um i play around with that in really dangerous ways um in a market that's everybody's like patagonia let's go happy and life is good and i'm sitting over here going you know let's go grab a martini type of person hmm. so um it fits but it doesn't um but that's also part of it is the the constant juxtaposition yeah you know like a lot of people are just like you need to write more stuff and you need to, you know, tell more about your personal life. And I'm like, no, I, I don't want to. That's, it's not the exercise to be a whore on this stupid platform. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of people that are really successful of being like, you know, here's my life. Here's my kids. Here's my car. Here's my, you know, my granddaddy and get to know him. And it's like, 
it's horrible. I'm way more guarded and um, people would say pretentious. Yeah. But I think that might also speak to your general philosophy of the business that you're building. Like it seems yeah. to to me at least that you're into this. And one of the distinctions we try to make in season one was the idea that like there are uh, people who own their own businesses right. and they are small business owners and they are effectively self-employed. Sure. And then there are entrepreneurs. Right. And that... It, it's the though the word is used to capture maybe all of those people. Right. An entrepreneur is really in it to grow an asset that they could and are open to sell. Absolutely. Selling. Yeah. Um, and so strategically, if you are actually moving into a business as a entrepreneur, you're going to do things differently than if you're running your own small business. Of course. In which you are an employee and potentially the face of the brand. Right. And so like. Mm-hmm. We're doing a lot of stuff that is not necessarily what a entrepreneur who's building a marketing agency for the sake of selling it to insert any of the biggest three marketing conglomerates. Sure. We're kind of scratching our own itches right now. And so you not being, you know, totally, let's say, vulnerable through your Instagram marketing um, or website uh, blog post. Right is strategic to me that makes sense that's on brand um also though your uh you do show up in your instagram stories sometimes sometimes in these like i am a so we met you as a sailor right we met you as this seafarer um who is on this call it lonesome quest that fits the narrative that you're talking about and so when you do show up it is Again, on brand, right, and 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 amazing, in in my yeah. opinion, well, it's authentic because it's, I think it's effortless, and I think that the more that I explore entrepreneurship, or the more that I explore, let's just get into like nuts and bolts of like work, right, fulfillment in life, and I think that um, I've tried, I've tried enormous. I mean, the enormity of the things and trades that I do, it really fits my name: the jack of all trades and a master of none. And I like it that way. But the reality is, is that um, there is something absolutely mysteriously special about when you can do something and you don't know that you're doing it. And it's effortless. It is absolutely like, I got to do this. Yeah. I have to do it. And it's, you don't monitor your time. You don't, oh, God, you know, whatever. It's, there's no whining. It is just a thing. It's not even a thing that you have to like get up and have good, you know, routine. And I've done the worst things and been good at them too. But when you can do it and it's like effortless, it's amazing. So I'm on, I'm in hot pursuit of that, right? Yeah. And I think that entrepreneurship allows me the ability to, I'm thankful that it does. I'm actually, I wasn't grateful for a long time, to be honest. I think the rhetoric's washed out. If you're not grateful, you're not grateful. But I became grateful because this allows me, the opportunity to explore what is effortless. And I think, um, or explore the things that echo the things that I don't want to talk about. It's like, I'm not doing what other people do. I'm still in business, still doing pretty good. Um, so it, it's, I'm exploring what it is to be authentically on brand, um, in a way that, um, it's on my time. Right. So like, I feel very grateful about that. That, mm-hmm. that is a, that is a privilege. Um, so I'm thankful for it. 
But it, the things that I do, yeah, it's like, what are you, what, what are you doing, Jack? Are you trying to sell clothes? Or are you trying to sell trips to Bermuda? <laughs> and I'm like, I wouldn't mind selling trips to Bermuda. I yeah. think I could like curate a, a really cool adventure program. I, I mean, we would be the first people to sign up. Absolutely, I, I got some crazy <laughs> ideas, um, and that's. A lot of people have actually told me that I need to get on to this side of things because I used to do radio, actually, mm-hmm. um, and um, in high school and uh, after. But it was a big pursuit of mine. Mm-hmm. I really wanted to go into communications. But um, it's, uh, yeah. So, you know, I'm heading more and more towards, like, I need to start a YouTube channel. But mm-hmm. there there I am again being the face of some thing. But you know, Anthony Bourdain, you know, he did things the way that I would do things, right? Yeah. Or I would do it a little bit more, but um, it's that same thing. So I don't know where I'm heading towards it. I'm glad to have a store, but it's um, it's not necessarily what I want to do with my life by any means. Right. But it, So it echoes the entrepreneurial aspect. It's like, it's an accolade of confidence. Like I can do anything. I can start a cell phone store if I need to in <laughs> Afghanistan. It doesn't matter, but um it, it it's all just building up your repertoire, right? Right. And the the words that I would say is like you, what you're trying to access are flow states, right? Yeah. Like you're trying to access this exactly. uh, timeless, um, fully kind of present, yeah, um, in the work itself. Um, and I I think in a lot of ways, once people realize that they can do actual work, meaning uh, something that puts potentially money in your pocket, um. And it can also scratch that flow state itch. How can you do better than that? Like that's got to be the quest. That's got to be the quest to find that and access it more. Absolutely, I think it's like the the real philosophical dichotomy in this world is that everybody's trying to leave society existentially, enlightenment, be present, be here now. Pick a freaking philosopher, right? Pick an actualization model that you believe in. Pick a religion. Pick something, right? Um, but then society says, but you got to make money and you got to like, you know, participate in some level. So there's this weird, like paradoxical juxtaposition of like, how do I have one foot in this and be satiated in that and yeah. do what you love and, but you got to take care of yourself, you know? So it's this, it's, it is the classic societal sort of thing. Yeah. Oh. And if you have the privilege to, to find something, oh man, that's enlightenment for me. That's, 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 that is what we're here to do in my opinion. And so we've knocked the four hour work week and also uh, praised the four hour work week, yeah. the book, Tim Ferriss, right? Um, and one of the things that it teaches and models is the idea of this muse business. And what he was teaching was like, you know, it's a t- almost low cost, um, almost no time effort business. It's maybe it's virtual and you're just, right. you know, fulfilling through Amazon. It was 11 years ago. That might not have been a thing. But um, the Muse business opens you up once you have a, a cash flow generating thing to do work that might be actually fulfilling. Right. And what I'm hearing or starting to unpack is that you've done something that is perhaps two or three or five levels above that, which is you've built a business that it in and of itself was and is fulfilling and potentially this shop existing is affording you the ability to do things yeah, that is. are like to us bananas sailing from wherever to wherever and going yeah. on journeys in in 2020 and i love that yeah and i'm like sarah what are we gonna <laughs> how are we gonna what's our 
<laughs> we got some ideas. 2020 could be a cool year. Yeah. And hanging out with people like you who are a couple steps ahead is going to move us in that direction, Sarah. How exciting is our life right now? It's imperative. I, I do believe in that sense of community. Yeah. Like, and they're, they're, you know, I'm, I'm too brutally honest, but um, I don't really have anybody here that is like doing anything that like, yeah, it's putting me up there. So it's, I'm in, you know, constant pursuit of trying to, to work on that. And it's, um, yeah, it just, it takes me around the world, but, um, yeah, everything. I mean, I just sit here and regurgitate what you just said, but, um, it's damn on point. So yeah. And I I just hope that, you know, the only work that's really, that, that I need to do here is, is to buy and merchandise and all these kind of things. But Mm -hmm. the goal is to, um, to not maintain a shop, but to start things. I'm a good, I'm a starter, fire starter, right? Yeah. So, and um, and I just want to also go back to a handful of minutes back where you were talking about the, and it's easy to make this sound, it's easy to throw this away like it's a corny thing. But I I worked for at least a little while, a little less than probably two full years in retail. Um, so I was the person sitting alone in a small shop for a while. I was sure. selling. Um, at a big box like retailer who lost its way, J. Crew, right? I was one of their very personal stylists. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I've seen big, I've seen small, but there is something you're absolutely right. And I didn't, I wanted to catch it while we were there, but there's something unbelievable about you can see the change in someone when you put something on that, uh, that fits right totally. or that was just outside of what they thought they could pull off. And then they see themselves and they're like, wow. Um, and there's, you get goosebumps, they get goosebumps, and there is something truly amazing in clothes. Oh, yeah. And it's easy to throw it away as a, a vanity pursuit, but I'm of the mind, and we talked about it a little bit on the idea of like smaller wins leading to bigger wins and smaller risk leading to the yeah. ability to take on larger risk. If someone can get a, a easy and small win by changing their clothes and changing the way they feel about themselves what else could happen downstream? Oh, like, it's amazing. It could be the very first domino that sure. leads to a full-on life change. Right. And it's just because you got a, a, a shirt that was a size smaller because everyone told you you were fat when you were a kid, so you wear XLs and you're large. Yeah, I mean, in the trinity of like what everybody thinks, it's like, I'm here to tell you, it's if you got an IQ and an EQ and you're all put together or whatever you think you're in control of in your mind, if that body component isn't in there, you're going to fail in a whole bunch of ways that you don't even know how to control. So there's this like body thing, right? And then there's this like existential, called spiritual, whatever other thing. So the Trinity is real for real thing. Um, and the mind component and getting up and doing all the organization and being in control is like a part of it. But like there's all these other extensions to what you are as a body and in, in, in this projection of three dimension, right? So like you, it's so slippery because you're like, I am more than I am not this body, and I don't need to focus on fashion and all. You know, like it's ruining the world and plastic, and uh, yes, absolutely, it's the worst industry in the world. Clothing, it's the worst thing. It's like slavery. It's horrible. Um, but yet it is like you take a homeless person off the street, you give them a haircut and fresh set of clothes, changes lives. I've proven it over and mm-hmm. over and over and over. So it's. 
you know, it's, you go back, let's get anthropological, right? So you go back to like where we get pattern in society in Africa and like what it means to communicate with your clothes and, um, what it is to have pride and community sort of aspects of being able to, to align with, um, color and, uh, culture and history and all these things. I mean, clothing is one of the most amazing passive communication tools. I mean, sexuality, um, to uh, prosperity, to, I mean, it is the greatest communicator that we have, um, outside of the senses. It's just, it's one of the most, like, you don't even know what's going on, but you, your, your brain does like you are, you are digesting things on through clothing and other people's communication at all times. Noah terabytes or what's the word petabytes Petabytes, Petabytes of data coming in through our eyeballs about what's going on around us totally um and you have more control over it as a uh, three-dimensional being by the clothes you put on that body no i mean i i I agree i i was telling tony the other day about my happiness trick one of my happiness tricks which is Wear lipstick. Like if I'm feeling like particularly down about myself or just not feeling like beautiful or whatever, just put on some lipstick yep. and I feel great. So I think that speaks to that. It's a huge thing. And you talk, you go and go deeply into the sociological aspect yeah. of how specifically in sex, the female, um, not all females, because now we have to be careful about pronouns and definitions of yeah. gender, but, um, Specifically, the reason, the deeper you get in fashion, the more you realize that there is a much deeper school ingrained to the female in Western society than, than the male. And they have the tools and have built the rhetoric because of the observance of being beautiful for their whole lives and that whole thing. That they have a deeper understanding and it, it makes the complexity of buying a much more complex sort of shiny thing you can't take a picture mm-hmm. of. So it's... It's interesting because the deeper you get in fashion, the more you actually appreciate women's clothes. Yeah. As even being in menswear. Yeah. I mean, the form is unbelievable. It's one of the most, like, reinforced things globally. I mean, it, it like, you really peel back what all this is, and then you look at the female aspect of it. It's, um, it's stunning. It's absolutely stunning. And you get into real couture, and then you really start looking at form. It's uh, groundbreaking. We were just in here. Uh, one of the conversations we had with Kylie was around Sarah got you know a dress. I got a suit. We're getting married in a couple weeks. Yeah, congrats. Thank you. And uh, the and I was like, you know, Sarah said how she doesn't know anything about suits. I'm like, it's pretty easy. Like there's there's a couple there's a couple silhouettes in suiting today, mm-hmm. but generally there's not much. Like there's a ton of things you can do to. For detail? Sure. Um, but it's like, to do the shoulders fit? Is the length right? How do you want Something your... Something that covers the chest. You know, like, your arms through? Yeah, right? it's like, yeah. And then you can do what I feel is unlimited amount of silhouettes in women. And maybe they all fall back to a couple forms. But women's wear always frightened me. Because I was like, guys, it's like a pocket tee, je- pants that fit. That don't make you look short. Absolutely. Pants that don't make you look short. Mm-hmm. And a pocket tee. Yeah. yeah, like it's that simple for right. men, um, casual at least, and then suiting isn't that hard either. But like, at least my understanding of it, and then women's, it is absolutely bananas the amount of 
Oh, the, imagine the responsibility. I, I mean, can't of the of the woman, you know. But this is sort of the unsung hero, and this is where I have to dangerously step into a a, a woman's narrative that needs to own this, not a fucking guy telling a woman's story. But the mother teaches the daughter, you know, a lot of these things, or society teaches her how to find her voice, you know. And if she's lucky, she finds um, things that work. And as I've been in women's wear, you start realizing that there there's so much to consider on on um, the body the the personas and body types of women are like over twelve classically, um, and then men there's only like three, right? Mm. So like um, just bleh, you know right there the spectrum just gets like infinitely gray, um, and then that's that's sort of how, why it's so special um, and why it's so hard. And why most people think that they can participate, but the reality is that um, it's deeply, intimately, specifically individualized. The, yeah. the singularity of it per person is so interesting. Your personality is so special, but yeah. how you wear clothes and how you know yourself through what you wear to pursue the suit of the, the of style. Um, yeah, it's 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 a miracle, if you may. Yeah, because two exact same forms of human physically could walk in. And because of what's between their ears, you put the same clothes on them, same size, and they would look hypothetically exactly the same. Sure. One buys it, one goes home and doesn't eat food for a week or something crazy. Oh, well, body dysmorphia. That's a a mental thing, right? So body dysmorphia is a whole other component of like two women, two guys, same thing, um, coming here and... They look great. You put them in something, you personally style them in something that's appropriate for their frame, column, weight, height, all that stuff, blah, blah. Um, the person with body dysmorphia is going to talk themselves out of it, mm-hmm. self-sabotage themselves into bad clothes. This happens like tremendous amount of times. And you can see it on the street too. Like you start watching people mm-hmm. with body dysmorphia. You can see it if you start looking for it. Um, it's wild. Yeah. But that's the self-sabotaging aspect of maybe a conditioning and behavioralism that was taught to them by their parents. Yeah. The self-hate. Or they were a fat kid. Or, you know, they don't have true confidence, you right? Can, I can always see it in, in guys. Like, the amount of, like, shirt pulling yeah. is, like, always a tell for me as to how right. comfortable or uncomfortable this guy feels in his own body. Yeah. And, I mean, you know, like, for me, I've been slightly chubby my whole life. And heavier and sometimes and then, you know go to CrossFit and for a couple of years and you know, I'm this other thing, but what I have to sacrifice is like, why do I have to sacrifice so much more? And you get into this personal thing, this identity thing. And I can really relate with it. It brought, that's what brought me into clothing, to be honest, powerful. was, um, the ability to see sort of the frustration on like, God, nothing fits me off the rack or, um, nothing fits me or I have to make sacrifice mm-hmm. to make it fit. Huge component though. So I have one. Oh, sorry. Sarah. No, well, talking about all this, and I'm thinking, God, like I'm not really good at fashion. Like, like I struggle <laughs> all the are. time, and and I, I, you know, you I try great. and whatever. Yeah. But like, how? What would you recommend to someone that's like maybe feels that way about themselves or, or doesn't understand their body type or how they should dress? Like, what what should they do to make you know wear better clothes? I'm gonna take a swing at it, and then I want. Jack, I want your actual yeah, yeah, professional opinion. Yeah, that's a tricky one. That's a really hard one. I'm mean, embarrassingly just kind of say I don't know, but okay. Well, yeah. my my guess was going to be to come into a place like this, mm-hmm. where the likelihood of the employee caring more than a 
um, Old Navy employee sure. uh, is going to be higher, and the employee might go above and beyond to communicate the things you need to communicate to get someone from square one to square two. Yeah, I would. Yeah, I mean, and I feel like it's not a good enough answer for what you want, but yeah. um, altruistically, we, me and Kylie, cannot sell you something if it fits like shit. I'm just, I just, I'm not in business for that type of bullshit. Because it will come back to bite you. I'd rather help someone find something appropriate, even if it's not in the store. I mean, I have sent people away and lost business. But they come back because they trust you. In the near term, you lose business, not in the long term. Yeah, exactly. For sure. So I think that, like, it's a, it's a very intimate, very hard to put a finger on. Like, um, it's a hard path. Like, to find out what fits you. I mean, like... I've observed the classic route to what you're going to have to go through. You have to fail. You have to buy things. Most of the things are that I've seen is that if you start the pursuit, it goes down. I like what that echoes as a piece, like a silhouette. Mm. Um, I like how it makes me feel when I look at it. But the biggest thing is that um, you might like leopard pants. I like leopard pants. But it's not about the leopard pants. It's about the cut of the leopard pants. So there's like these levels of, of division in clothing. And, and I think that's the first lens to break down is that you can have great textiles, an amazing mood, a silhouette. But if it's not in the boundaries of what you know, which you only, the only way to figure it out is to buy and then have buyer's remorse. God, I love this dress so much. Jesus, I love this dress. Da, 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 da. But it just doesn't fit, right? And the, but there's this like relationship. It's like, yeah. but I still want it. And then you like yeah. hold on to you spend it. Spend so like, much money on it. Yeah, yeah, right? <laughs> yeah. And then you like hang it in your house, right? Or like drape it on something and look at it and tease yourself and torture yourself and all this shit, right? And then you you know um, you wake up after you spend fifty thousand dollars on clothes that don't fit you, and you realize that it's about the repetition. But it is, it's a muscle. I think that you have to like kind of break through yeah. the exhaustion of whatever. So. You see it in some people, like when you're in LA, it's, you, you go to the Buffalo exchanges and you see the people essentially at school, you know, they are at school, they are learning what fits them. Um, but I don't think there's like one thing, you know, like I, I and unfortunately the only first thing is like, I want to get into fashion. It's like, I would just tell you to, to start the road of fucking up, Yeah, which is like chase what you like, you know? I had, it, it's that preciousness of ambition. So, in 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 and specifically in women's, it's just beyond my grasp. But in, in menswear, one of the things that I was always afraid of, and I was afraid of like moving people towards, was like the idea of um, costumes rather than like outfits or looks. Sure. Yeah. Or like it's really easy to say, "All right, I want to get this new thing," and now I walk out of the store and I got this cowboy outfit, <laughs> and I'm like, "What?" <laughs> you yeah, know, and then your friends see you and you're like. You know, it, it's just too far of a move from your, like, call it middle of the road. Yeah. Sure. That it's like, that doesn't look like you. Um, like, if I were to wear, I don't know, big boots with buckles and a racer jacket, people would be like, all right, well, you're normally in black, but this is like very different totally. vibe of black. Right. <laughs> what happened to you? Are you okay? Um, <laughs> and you can see it on the street. You see somebody that's like, like you said, uncomfortable in their skin, whether they're picking their clothes and doing sort of the overweight thing or that they're like 
you know, some on a dork that's like, you know, trying to look super serious or whatever. And some like inappropriate or some 65 year old guy with like tattoos and an affliction t shirts. Like, where's your white New Balances, dude? Yeah. Um, so it's, it's, you know, you, it, and it's great people watching. And I have, I mean, I'm an empathetic, compassionate person, yeah. but you can really see false confidence a mile away, especially in clothing. So it's kind of like this weird balance between finding what fits your body type and what fits your personality and yeah. making that all work. The synergy, the syncretic hope is that you'll put it all together and it will be like an extension of something that's truthful. And then, you know, ah, you know, it's like, and there's an exercise in fashion that um, I haven't yet taken, but ah, so cool. I think it's the real exercise that really puts everything together is that, um, wear one outfit for a year. Same outfit. Uh, I'm all called the that. uniform. Yeah, experiment. And I, I used to call that, um, or the concept that when I heard something like it is, um, it, it's living your life like you're a cartoon character. Yeah. But like the guy yeah, in the exactly. cartoon only wears the blue shirt. Totally. Every time. Totally. And that's at, like that's absolutely fine. Yeah. And then other people call it Steve Jobs. You're thinking less, but I subscribe to something of the uniform mentality. And I think that most people, in my opinion, that look cool have a very minimal approach of course. to what they're doing. Yeah. And often when people are doing a lot, it doesn't actually look cool to me. That's my, it's been my read. Agreed. I think that just like all things in the creative aspect uh, in our lives, if you may, is the simple things are the hardest. And I, I think that echoes so perfectly in what you're trying to say, which is, um, Absolutely. Oh man. If you can get it down to one thing, Steve Jobs is a god. You know, like that there's only one person of an infamy of a black turtleneck and jeans and white shoes. I mean, there's only one dude. Um I mean Lagerfeld. Lagerfeld I mean, was my other on. thought that's in my head. And then there is just like so many so many other people, but I mean, um yeah, it's I, I think that's how perfect, yeah. you know, it's almost like a, a, a death, right? It's, it gets to a point to where it's like, you know, that's one checkbox, you know, in this experience. So we have a whole bunch of questions that we, uh, probably have written down for towards the end. I have one more that I've been thinking about, uh, yeah, sure. about the shop. Um, it, and it's the idea of being, being a retailer versus building a, you know, a brand brand. Yeah. Right. And then the idea that, and I think, I worked at J. Crew around when they leaned into a lot of like J. Crew X stuff. Mm-hmm. So it's like J. Crew X, Nigel Caborn, exactly right. right. So and it was all of these brand collabs and limited run things sure. loosely. It's J. Crew, so it wasn't that limited. Um, I would love to hear your breakdown or thoughts around brand, like a, a clothing brand. Versus a retailer that aggregates and multi-brand, yeah. multi-brand. and then you mentioned in, in the answer of a different question, you mentioned how you sometimes have pieces that are just six and they were made just for this shop. Mm-hmm. Um, that wasn't a question, but I'm going to say yeah. that and then hand you the Set mic. The stage, <laughs> yeah. It's a, it's a. Um, I don't really know. I'm still figuring it out. It's a moving target, right? Um, in the regard to say. This is one of the, also the famous three steps. I need to start a brand in my store. It's like, dude, you know, the quickest way to go out of business is start a brand. So 
what is the brand? Well, a brand from like a Paul Rand perspective is a, a mark that echoes an ethos, right? It has, and and that's what I wanted to do um, with a friend of mine for Old North, um, who is one of the assistant creative directors at Target, um, and we come from a supreme appreciation for subconscious communications of colors and and the insinuation of a marker or brand and how it can hold memetics, collections of ideas that you don't even know anything about. And it's a moving thing. It's like a psychological thing. It floats in the air. You Mm -hmm. put it on a billboard, uh, Pepsi logo makes people happy or whatever, you know, like you start getting into like weird communication. So I have a supreme appreciation for brand, but it's like a careful exercise. So, um, the brand aspect of having a multi-brand store and being a store that sells other people's things um, and curating it in a way that says, this is what I believe and the, all these other brands echo my brand um, is a, a pretty honest and noble pursuit, I believe. And that's from a true humility standpoint, which I have not that much, but my humility is honest. Um is that that's all I've ever really wanted to do was to be able to echo something from old North that says, here is the, it, you know, the parent child relationship and here's all the children that are appropriately playing in this sort of spectrum of old North throughout the way. There's some, there's complexities of wanting and thinking that you need to start a private label old North brand shirts. You know, what's, what's my number one selling commodity, but let's break it down into through the, the nuts and bolts. Oxford cloth men's shirts. That's yeah. my guess. 65% of everything we sell for men's is, is, is a button-down shirt, right? So uh, why not make those? And then get, you know, I have a keystone. So it's a, I buy it for a dollar, sell it for $2. Why not do the H&M model where I get eight times? So private label famously in India or China could get you six to 12 times. So um, why don't I do that? Well, it's a quick $25,000 screw-up or 50,000 or something. And it's a complexity of a business owner where you're like, I know how to buy. I know what style is. All the things that we talked about. And now I have to be into manufacturing, supply chain, production, all these things. Famous last step. Famous last step for everybody. Uh, Including union made, including uh, need supply, including all these people. So, um, but there is this sort of, the old legacy and, and now the most contemporary part of it is that um, a brand that produces a product made for them that you can't get anywhere else is the most successful marketing model that you can possibly do to manufacture or produce goods. Um, and that's this mono brand sort of thing is um, a legacy component where it's like, God, I need to have something that I can control the marketplace of. And then the, the complexity of being underfunded but wanting to play in the same landscape it's 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 very difficult to sort of like answer that um but i have played around with private label at a very careful way when a lot of people have gone out of business because you gotta do five thousand pairs you mm-hmm. know or like you get in manufacturing it's just like it's a whole nother podcast into the like everything that i've observed and i've had two failed labels um and each one is a different lesson but the more I'm, more deeper I get into this business, the more I'm, I actually want to be in manufacturing. So oh. I want to be in supply chain. It's uh, 
it because it's a geopolitical thing and it, it like opens up into like a way weirder like whoa this is like what's really going on in the world and um you know it gets into textiles politics logistics all sorts of weird shit um and then you have to really put your thinking cap on to be able to forecast you think 500 people will buy that you know like i buy like six pieces you know yeah my losses are like so freaking dynamic they're like I couldn't lose because I'm throwing every type of color, shape, and whatever at the damn wall. So I can pivot. Yeah. And that's just out of careful naivety, knowing that at some point I'll screw up. But at some point, I've created so many exits and, and pivots that I'll succeed because that's my nature. But it's also the early telltales of someone that doesn't really know the business, doesn't really know manufacturing, and doesn't need to. Yeah. So... That's the truth of it all is that I'm a real good survivor in a place where I don't know what I'm doing. Um, but I have enormous respect for people that do. I mean, it is hard to produce a brand, to get capitalization, to forecast into the future, to be something that is going to survive and be a legacy brand. Psh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not worthy of some bad, you know, movement. So it's <laughs> like, I, uh, <laughs> Yeah, cool. You know, that's kind of it. But and, and I, I want to pursue done, it. But psh. have you done a bunch of partnerships uh, or like collaboration, collaboration product yeah. type stuff? Yeah, it's careful. I mean, you have to do things that you know make both parties you know feel whatever. But I think the collaboration for this heritage brand thing has really slowed down a lot. It seems like it you know, outside. It's like, you know, I don't need to co-brand everything. It's gotten to the point where it's just sloppy and trashy. Mm-hmm. Cool, but. Um, there are some things that are I'm really proud of, you know, like Tender and William giving us the opportunity to sew on our labels and, and do a collaboration with us for our anniversary. And I think when it's appropriate, you know, like I've been, we've been approached by some very, very large brands to do private label suiting, which is something I really want to pursue and get into the tutorial stuff. Hmm. But um, I don't know if it's appropriate for the marketplace and, uh, you know, I mean, wishy-washy for years on this but have an opportunity to build an old north private label so it'd be like old north suiting and it's like the labels inside of it and it has the whole like you know as a i'm not a designer but like you get into this oh but what if i could put my label in it and it'd be mine and like this thing that like is like an accolade on your sachet of boy scout bullshit right um but i'm still like i have enough restraint to know that um that's the beginning of dangerous mm-hmm um, so, or maybe not, maybe I'm, you know, a lot of people are like, you think too much, dude. Um, or you are, you know, not taking enough risk. I have gotten this far, but if it's appropriate, it's appropriate. I, I do believe that there is an old North private label or a brand that's about basics and that's where everybody goes. Old North t-shirts and khakis and button downs and this little label and, and you know, make it look like J crew and da, 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 and play the safe, um, and capitalize on those things. But out the gate, it's not going to be, it's going to be harder, more complex. I'll be doubling down on silhouettes and my wisdom, but I'm not going to make more points, right? And not at first. That's the refinement of production and manufacturing is that it's a lot of hard work. Why do I want to do that right now? Um, so I don't know if it's appropriate right now because we, we exist, we thrive, but we're also like, you know, 
I, this is this is such a cash business, you know. So, um, yeah. Cool. Couple more questions. Yeah, so we got, we got ten minutes. Max. Yeah. Let's do it. Let's do it. Speed round. One I'll of the questions we always like. One of the questions we always like to ask is, you know, if we had a magic wand, let's say, um, what would you ask for either from us uh, or the audience that's listening right now sure. um, to help you today or this year or this month? Um, I just be nice. Screw me, you know. Uh, I think maybe the only thing that's appropriate is to to say that in the landscape of how we interact, um, I think the number one untalked about thing is the courtesy and conscientiousness to which we interact with people, mm. specifically in clothing or retail or any aspect. Service. So it's a conscientious thing. I'd like to say it's like, you know, I've worked in all the other things. I've never treated people badly, but man, do people treat people badly in this business. Specifically in retail. Yeah, it's like, you know, the generic thing is like, uh, you know, all right, kitties, when you're out there, respect everybody and, you know, be nice and courteous or whatever. And it's like, yeah, you should know that. And I think most people do. But like, um, as we grow into this dystopian version of whatever this damn phone is doing to us, which is making us antisocial and staring at this thing and not talking to each other and yeah. not being like intimately in sort of engaged, you know, my... Uh, double-edged sword here as being a retailer and everybody that works in retail is that we have to be courteous, kind, and receptive to you as a client, mm -hmm. you as a person. Mm -hmm. And that's our job. Hey, how you doing? I'm genuinely here not to screw you over. <laughs> I'm here to see if you want help. I'm not going to, I'm not hard sell that dude, mm -hmm. but I have to do certain things. You'll find that a lot of people are really, the more and more you're in retail, the more and more you realize that things are changing. People are becoming more antisocial the loss of communication skills. And then also with that, you see this sort of like distrust as well as disrespect in general. It's like, dude, I'm not your minion. Like, so there's, yeah. I, and this goes to everybody in every aspect of what you do in your whole life, just be conscientious and be nice. You know, like I'm not going to be a hippie about it, but, um, it, it is, it is truly the only thing that's important. Yeah. Here. So well, was, I, Absolutely love that as an answer, sir. Yeah. Yeah. Um, my uh, speed around question, you mentioned uh, community earlier. And mm -hmm. one of the things that we're thinking a lot about, because we've gotten different versions of feedback, mostly all positive. Sure. Uh, one person says that we're um, still in the honeymoon phase of Asheville. And I think he's right. But my question to you is, when you think of the Asheville community, maybe from seven years ago and today, what comes to mind? Um and I don't know what, what do you try to bring to it or what, when you think about community here, what thoughts come up? I'm not part of it, to be honest. Um, I'm a loner, you know, in the sense of that's my pursuit, but I do believe in what Asheville's building. It's not necessarily, it's not, it's not me for me a long term. And most people would be surprised about this. Um, but I do respect it and I come from a similar aspect to which I romanticize. So growing up in Portland in the eighties and nineties, this was the same kind of vibe. Mm -hmm. I don't have a family. I don't have children. I don't, I'm not all these things that are classically echoed here as a community. Um, but I do respect it and I do believe that it's precious. And I do believe that, um, I 
have I fight for the underdog and I fight for the weirdo all day long. And this place is the weirdest place you can be in the South. So um, in the sense of community, I, I do believe that there is a preciousness of expat and exile, creative, entrepreneurial, ambitious person, uh, or someone who's hurt in life. This is a place to heal. And this is, this is a place to take poise and pause and explore things that you can't explore because this damn society requires us to just pay more than we should and work more than we should. And this is a beautiful, this is a beautiful place to do that. Um, and I think that's the essence of what Asheville provides, but that's changing. Mm -hmm. It's not cheap to live here anymore. I mean, we all come from larger places where even now it's still cheap in my eyes. I mean, I paid, you know, whatever, some $1,400 a month. It was like, I was paying that in the nineties in San Francisco. So it's like, uh, like it's, but it's expensive relatively, relatively if you have to no what? exposure to other things. So, and but, also if you're working a standard of course, job, absolutely. So it's upside down and it's been more increasing for that. And then housing, and then Airbnb and there's all this mm -hmm. stuff. So like any small market, there's, I'd say that it's probably the same drama that's going around, mm -hmm. right? yeah. but there's something unique here that is unique and it's people that are, um, really spending the time to, um, formulate a community. I think all I really wanted to do was, was bring in for old North and what we do. I just wanted to, to elevate, take a risk and elevate things so that other things could grow around us. I wanted to be a catalyst if I could. Love it. Yeah. And I think that, you know, East Fork coming in behind me, um, all sorts of small, other little stores where Gilly, a bunch of other people that are in contemporary sort of like, I really want competition. I, I really want people to thrive in a way that I just, I'm ready for this place to, to, to usher in a new era. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what's happening. Yeah. So awesome. So uh, when we visited here three months ago, yeah. we stopped in, we met you guys and you gave us a, super long, wonderful list of restaurants, cafes, bars to go to in right. Asheville. Um, and I know we don't have time to go through all of those and sure. it would probably be a whole other podcast to do that, be, to be honest. But, you know, if you had to kind of identify two or three spots uh, that you love going to, where, where would you go in Asheville? Yeah. Um, I'm going offend everybody because I know everybody, <laughs> right? So, but, you know, eh, screw you. The reality is that I like what I like, and I can get it pretty down quick, and people know what I like. Um, Bull and the Beggar is the greatest restaurant in Asheville and maybe in the, in the United States. Um, I know Matt Dawes barely um, as an acquaintance for being business owners or whatever, but Drew and Matt do consistently the best ex restaurant experience I've ever had in my life. Oh, wow. And Bull and the Beggar is... is exceptional and and just for context because we won't do the 30 minute conversation that we did the first time sure that this this type of level of enthusiasm means a lot because we've talked about a lot of restaurants yeah. and a lot of cool cities totally yeah. that are very very globally let's say well respected sure um and for you to say that like i know means a ton so wow okay yeah and i mean i'm overexposed you know it's like i'm not the most you know haven't been to Noma yet, and I do whatever. Yeah, but you know, I'm, I eat way too many expensive dinners in my life. Bull and the Beggar is exceptional, wow. unbelievable. Um, consistently, like you walk away happy every time. 
the next it, it's all restaurant and bars for me mm-hmm. but um um i would have to say the crucible is my favorite bar i'm drink drinking in all these bars i don't drink beer i'm surprisingly a beer capital and i don't yeah. drink beer i hate beer it smells like farts I hate <laughs> um so i don't touch this i used to drink beer yeah. but it's a great way to get fat and i don't like beer but um for cocktail bars intimacy you know, I'm older, so I, I don't want to, like, go party and, like, I don't really want to socialize. I want to go, like, hide out in a dark bar, right? So, um, Crucible, the owners, I've known them since I came here. I look up to Anna. I look up to Brandon. They're some of the m- most resilient people I think you can find in Asheville. I don't know them as deep as other people. I'm not trying to insinuate that I do. But I appreciate their company, and I like that I can support something that mm-hmm. echoes my same ethos. Mm-hmm. And that bar is the coolest bar. That's, cool. That's a cool it. bar. But it's a small little local bar. And then the other one is um, All Souls Pizza. I like All Souls a lot. Um, I have watched them. They opened up around the same time that I opened up, and it's um, it's great. Um, I like the the people that work there. I like the environment. It, it reminds me of Portland in the 80s. And sitting outside and a lot of West Coast living kind of things. So it's just that and it's simple. It's pizza. I mean, mm-hmm. But um, there's a lot of other great stuff, you know. Totally. There's, there's a ton yeah. of great stuff. Yeah, and yeah. You, you gave us the full list. But I think that's a really telling little mixture. Yeah. Um, and we were lucky enough to have Old Souls for the first time last night. We picked up. We oh, didn't cool. eat there. But it was... Uh, We've it been, was on We've been on the hunt like for like good... Just... Good pizza, and like I know that's such a whatever word, like pizza is pizza, and it means something different for everybody. But coming from New York, coming from Italy, we're like very serious about it. So no, it's a cult. That was of all the pizzas we've had so far, that was the best one. And specifically, we were trying to target some like Neapolitan brick oven, cook for ninety seconds type of a vibe. Wish you could really find that true margarita, that kind of pizza, but. Yeah. Or the Neapolitan. I, I don't think that anyone really no. does it here. Someone, please, if you are a pizzaiolo, bring it to Asheville. Yeah. I wish I wish somebody would do that. Yeah. I mean, still, the but greatest business that is yet to be done in Asheville is a pizza window open till 4 a.m. Mark these words. <laughs> I also had a conversation. Uh, my my thought on a low-hanging fruit is a non-Starbucks-y vibe, but a, a place that is tight. That does coffee starting like 5 a.m., 4.30 mm-hmm. a.m. Oh, yeah. Where um, you're getting people who are on their way out to the airport. You're getting people who are on their way into totally. gyms and stuff. Um, or just generally wake up early and want to get the day started. I'm amazed at how few options there are before 7. Oh, I'm just amazed that people aren't open nine. seven days a week. You get this like, one. I'm closed on Sunday and Monday. I'm like, what is wrong with you? <laughs> But, you know, that echoes, like, the hustle yeah. past where, yeah. you know, I'm not entitled to a day off, you know. Yeah. So. I love that. Um, as we, I mean, are we at where do we find you on the internet? Or is there other questions? Yeah. I mean, is there anything else that we missed that you think you know, you'd like to include in the podcast? No. Well, I mean, they know about you. I don't know that much about, like, what you guys are doing. But. Um, well, we can hang around. Um, so, let's just quickly go to. Let's ask your ask the how do we find you on the internet? How do we find you? Because <laughs> like we're going to we're going to cut into how it. do we find you on the internet? Uh, oldnorthclothing.com is the website for the store. 
Um, and then we have an Instagram that you can find through that as well as some other mood boards and other things that extend into the existential mood that we were talking about earlier. Which, which you use words for something that I wouldn't have been able to pinpoint. And I thought that you captured what I see exceptionally well. Yeah. Cool. Yeah, well, absolutely. Cool. Love this. I thought we, I mean, that was, I hope that was fun for you. Yeah, it was really fun. Cool. I feel like we just get started. We are yeah. just getting started because yeah. we didn't even talk about it. This is just the ones that I know about, right? So there is a history in radio. There is a history in, as a musician. There's a history as a tattoo artist. There's a history as like enterprise sales project manager. There's a history in NOAA. Uh, there's building, like home building and flipping. There's retail. There's two brands that you said that have failed. Mm-hmm. Those are just the ones that I know about. Yeah, it was so a pilot, a diver for a living. Sailor. Sailing. Diver um, for a living. Yeah, I used to That's dive and weird. teach technical diving in the Keys and treasure hunted and all that kind of stuff, too. And uh, so if I'm doing the math right, would that put you at like 63 or 64 Most years old? Most say like 273. <laughs> yeah. um, it's funny how I always get that, but I haven't even started yet. I know. Like There's a... Go ahead. Yeah, it's just, it's just one of those things. It's like... Um, yeah, I haven't started. Um, they're all acquisitions. They're all like in the pursuit of the audition yeah. of life. Yeah. But um, like the flow state, I, th- I never yeah. heard that. that oh, yeah. yeah, yeah I never heard that like... concept yet. But it's exactly what I'm pursuing, which is like I've tried all these things. I've done them well, but I'm still trying to find that flow state, if you yeah. may. Yeah. And it might be camel herding in Uzbekistan. I, I have a sneaky suspicion it may. It might so. be. <laughs> uh, there's a funny, there's a funny, like it was a sign in a bathroom in Charlottesville. And the place had a name of a thing from a, from a, um, oh, now I can't think of his name, the Caddyshack character, but he, who, uh, Bill Murray. So it's a yeah. Bill Murray themed restaurant, cafe. And in the bathroom, it was specifically Bill Murray in Groundhog's Day was yeah. the theme of the thing. Sure. And so in the bathroom well, is a, is an infographic of how long Bill Murray would have had to have been in that Groundhog's Day experience based on all of the stuff he ends up becoming proficient in. Right, right. <laughs> it's like hundreds of years. Oh, like yeah. He would have went <laughs> mad. Like he would have, he would have like, but it's, he did go it's mad. Just, he did go mad, but it's, uh, it's really funny. And I do feel like there's, Part of your story feels like uh, Bill Murray. Yeah, yeah, I love that me. movie. And, you know, <laughs> I grew up with that movie. Yeah. But yeah, that's funny you say that. I, I, it is kind of like that. Um, I don't know. I, it's it's definitely a pursuit of of this um, calling. You know, I'm a quest questy dude. Yeah, you know, like I, I definitely. It's the hero's from, journey, man. You're you're Joseph Campbell's all over you. There you go. Joseph Campbell's all over heroes, you. You mm-hmm. know that and. You get into a lot of those same thinkers. So I definitely am, and I come from a philosopher's family, you mm-hmm. know. So it's it's that pursuit of stoicism that takes me where it takes me. So Stoicism showing up a handful of times yeah. now on these podcasts. I'm into it. The popular into hit it. term. All yeah. thanks to a dude that wrote Obstacles Away. Yeah. Uh, um, He's a Holiday, Ryan Holiday. He just yeah, wrote, that. I want to get his new book. I think it's out for pre-order. It's called <laughs> Stillness is key stillness is the key so the obstacle is the way uh ego is the enemy stillness is the key is the third in the trilogy i absolutely you know i was i got a story a little tale of coming to you know personal boundaries where you're you're um uh you're panicking 
in life, and it happens very rarely for me. But I was deep in the Amazonian jungle in Ecuador <laughs> in 2016, going to visit a friend in, in Bahia, um, in the coast, and north of Guayaquil, and um, I was having a panic attack because I was like 30 hours into a thing that I couldn't get out of. Like you can't just leave. Yeah. You can't fly out. There's no buses. You know, it's like you're stuck in this place. And you get a couple bad hangovers in you. You get a, you know, cement dirt floor accommodations. You know, those demons come for you real quick. You know, especially if you're having problems in your relationships. And you really see what you're made of. And um, I used a sat phone and called a really good friend of mine that's now passed away. And he, um, I was like, dude, if you got any recommendation for something that'll take me out of where I'm at. And he's like, I do download this book right now, go to a cafe and download this book. And I, I downloaded the audio book of obstacles away. Wow. And I listened to that thing eight times back to back. And it, it gave me and empowered me to pull myself out of my obstacle which was not being in control, being vulnerable in the jungle, not having any money, being, you know, like fucking hung over more than you've ever been hung over in your entire life, walking the streets of some dirt floor, dead dog, nowhere town. And it was like slingshot back into empowerment. Mm. It's fantastic. It's, it's a tool that I use to, I listen to that book anytime I'm having like a really lack of perspective. How funny that we unearthed something that might have been the best little jewel in all of it. Yeah. When we, when we, after we ended the podcast. <laughs> totally. <laughs> well, there's more, you know. Yeah. I love I that. that. Yeah. That, that's, that's where, you know, that's where it really gets the meat of yep. everything. You know, the clothes are cool, but um, it's really like, yeah, how it echoes into being a much more actualized person. Hmm. Style, confidence psychology, vulnerability, your relationships, what you do, all that stuff. It's cool. Well, speaking of what you do, thank you hey, for taking you. time this morning. Yeah, it's my pleasure. All right, and that was episode 21 with Jack Roche. I hope that you now understand what, what I was trying to get at in the intro. Like, Jack has done a ton of things, and I think in his own words... He's just getting started. We have no doubt that's true. Would love to be on one of his trips in the future if he ever does move into that space. Um, but if you're in downtown, you got to stop into Old North. Love the shop. Uh, meet Kylie if she's in. Jack, if they're in, tell them that we sent you. Yeah, and, and there's a lot that we covered in this episode. If there's something that you'd like to learn more about, please visit the show notes page of the episode at makingitinashville.com slash 021. We'll put links in there and we'll list, you know, any of the books, movie, crazy things that we talked about mm -hmm. in the episode. It will all be right there for you. And if you liked the episode and all of our meandering in the conversation, the details that we were able to pull out, please let us know by visiting uh, we have links in most podcast podcast players to Apple podcasts, which is the home for all real reviews on podcasts. Everyone that comes in uh, is incredibly meaningful. It helps us to get more people to see this and listen and hear the stories and learn about Asheville and these incredible guests that we get to speak with. 
Um, I think we're going to start like reading some of the reviews because like warm and fuzzies galore when people take the time to actually write things. It's one thing to like throw five stars and we are thankful for those for sure. But like some of the stuff people are writing like makes me sweat. It's so nice. (laughs) So thank you if you are one of those people. Um, Thank you if you become one of those people. Uh, It means the world. So we put out a podcast every week on Tuesdays. Uh, If you or someone you know would like to be on the podcast, please let us know. Again, we'll have links in the show notes of this page where you can do that. We are always looking for uh, new business owners, entrepreneurs, artists, creatives in the Asheville community uh, to tell their story. All right, Sarah. That was 21. Good job. High five. New South. (laughs) That's funny if you listen to the end of episode 20.